The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, man. I, you know, I got caught up. I got caught up in that last, that last feed item from Burt Breer, who joins us, making his brother from another debut. I've known Burt for a long time, but it's the first time He's been in this space, so I'm I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited for many reasons, Bert. Uh, as people know, people know that you are uh, one of the top football writers, one of the top football minds uh, in the country and in the world today. It's an international game, but that you know that's great. I'll give you that prop. I'll give you those props. What I'm excited about is that <laughs> you're a Buckeye. Bert yeah. Breer's a Buckeye, and you know we're going to get some Buckeyes conversation in today. Ohio State yeah. grad Burt Breer. Uh, it's where I spent the first 22 years of my life. So uh, once you're born a Buckeye, you're, you're a Buckeye for life. You cannot run away from it, nor would you want to, Burt, right? You, you spent some time in the Buckeye no. State. You don't want to get away from no, that. No, no. Yeah, I mean, like, and listen, like, I got a lot of Michigan and Michigan State people in my family, and I... I went the other way. I was the black that. sheep. And once that, and once that gets that. once that gets in your blood, I mean, it's it's every Saturday. And I'll tell you what, though, Michael, the great thing about it for me is it's like sort of kept me grounded. You know, we can become jaded when we cover this stuff and everything else. And you've covered all the sports, so you know. And you're in those locker rooms. You get to know the people, and it's more like you're kind of rooting for storylines, rooting for individual people, and it's. I, I feel like it's like what keeps me grounded, you know, like what keeps me like being able to relate to the audience is that I got something that I live and die with too. So that's it for me. Tell me about it. Look, I, I made the move when I made the move from Ohio. I was working in Akron. It was my first job. The Akron Beacon Journal is where, where I got my first internship and my first job job uh, out of college. Yeah. When I left Akron for Boston, I was like, okay, uh, I'll be covering Boston sports. <laughs> I got to be objective, so I, I'm not I'm not bringing any kind of uh, uh, any kind of allegiances with me. But mm-hmm. I will be bringing the Buckeyes. I'm just gonna let you know the Buckeyes are coming. Everybody else has to stay back in Ohio. It, you're absolutely right. It's one of those things that you always mm-hmm. uh, you always carry with you, and you root without apology. So we'll talk about the Buckeyes later in the show. This is what I do want to talk to you about, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time I was in Las Vegas. It was a couple weeks ago. We were there for the NFL draft and and Bert. I came away thinking uh, two things. One. It's not as if Vegas needs anything else to make it crazy, crazier. Right. Okay. Vegas doesn't need to help. It's already there. Yeah. But the NFL draft brings another element to Las Vegas. That was uh, you could feel it. It was tangible. And the other thing is they should really do it in Vegas every year, just as they had Radio yeah. City Music Hall for many years, New York, which is great. Big stage, big city. Vegas in the draft just makes so much sense. Stop moving it around. Keep it in Vegas. That was the last time I was in Vegas. I, last and, time and you know you, what? I'll, I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I'll double down. I'll double down on what you said. Put the Super Bowl every year in New Orleans. 
Super Bowl every year in New Orleans, draft every year in Vegas, and we're good. Like, I don't think anybody would argue with that. Some Miami, some L.A. Some Miami, maybe. I, I, was, I was feeling L.A. I New Orleans it. is, I New Orleans is a different. Stadium. New Orleans is a different animal, though. I mean, you could put any big event there. Like, no one will ever complain about a big event being in New Orleans. And I, I think the league goes, like, way too long between times they have the Super Bowl in New Orleans. Like, no one has to get in a car all week, right? Like, everything's accessible. Everything's right there. And the biggest thing, it doesn't get overwhelmed by the event. I'm sure it was – now, I wasn't in Vegas for the draft, but I'm, I'm sure Vegas for the draft felt the same way, where those cities are built for those sorts of things. They can just absorb No them. problem. It doesn't feel like – exactly. it doesn't feel like the city's overwhelmed. It doesn't feel like it's too much for anybody because they're built for those sorts of things. So, that was the last time I was there. But you were there recently. Um, <laughs> Tell me about your most recent trip to Vegas. What was going on? Uh, let's start off talking about that because I, I'm, I, I, was, I got so many questions for you. I was actually there about 12 hours ago. I, I, I read I back. So if, like, I, if it sounds like I'm trailing off at all, that might be why. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was great. I spent a day with the, with the Raiders out there and with Josh McDaniels. And, you know, I, I think what's fascinating about it, Mike, is that so many people followed him there, you know, and, and you look and if you want to know about the belief of a co- in a coach, like the way other coaches, the other way scouts feel about a coach, look at the people who followed him, right? So Patrick Graham was the defensive coordinator with the Giants, had a lot of opportunities. He chooses to go to the Raiders. You look at the guys in the Patriots staff, Mick Lombardi, Carmen Brasillo, those guys had options. Those guys chose to go with him. The Patriots knew like version of Scott Peel and Nick Casario, Dave Ziegler. He goes with him as general manager. And I think when you're in that building, you can kind of feel it's just different there now. And this isn't like they have a saying there that they use, no eggshells. Like no one is walking around on eggshells. Um, you know, like one, at one point, Josh pointed out to the parking lot and he said, I come in here at 6 a.m. There are 75 cars in that parking lot. And that's really kind of what their goal is right now. You can't win in games. You can't lose games right now. Um, but what you can do is you can build the sort of atmosphere where people want to come in and go to work. And I think based on his experience in Denver, that's what Josh and Dave are really trying to build is a place where people want to go to work. And I can tell you, like the first thing they did to try to build that, like you remember how things started with Jay Cutler, right? Like in Denver. Oh, so yeah. the first thing disaster. that Josh and Dave, disaster, the first, disaster. Jo- <laughs> the first thing Josh and Dave did after they got the head coach and GM jobs, they had a list of players. And they just ticked off the players and they called every single one of them and had a conversation with every single one of them, like before the news had even broken that they were taking the jobs because they wanted every one of those players to hear from them first and set the right sort of tone. And so, you know, it's going to be a demanding place to work, but I think there's a real focus on, you know, I'd almost compare it to like, and we, we can swing everything back to Ohio State now if you want. Like the way Ryan Day kind of lifted a dark cloud off the Sounds building. Sounds good like, to me. You, Coming yes, after, take come, time. coming after, coming, coming out from under the Urban Meyer era, right? Like a like a cloud lifted off the building, and Ryan had kind of taken what Urban built and adapted it, where it was demanding. They called it tough love, where they demand it was demanding, but they also created the sort of atmosphere where people wanted to come to work. I think that's what Josh is trying to do in in Vegas: is take the sort of standard that New England set, but kind of make it a friendlier place to come, make it the sort of place where people want to come into well, work, which. I mean, you've been around Josh enough. Like, I think that's actually yeah. more who Josh is. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. I, I think I think the New England thing probably gets in the way for a lot of people. They, they, you can go two ways with it. So, 
for some coaches and Josh McDaniels is an interesting study. That's why I'm just so fascinated by your trip out there, your visit to the Raiders facility because Josh McDaniels represents the two paths that you can take when you're a Bill Belichick assistant. He already did one of them, the wrong path in Denver. Yeah. So you go, you're 32 years old. I think he was when he took that job in 2009 and you're trying to bring the Belichick knowledge with a little bit of the Belichick persona, which is a huge mistake. Don't do it. Like there's so many coaches who do that. Some do it intentionally. Some do it unintentionally. But the fact is, there's only one Bill Belichick and he's the only he's only able to get away with his. Can we call it prickly personality? Because he what he, he's won so many games. Like if you yeah. start off, if you start off seven and ten for three straight years, and you try to act like that with the media, see what happens. Okay, you right. may not even make it three years. So I think he did that the first time in Denver. So guys either do the Belichick thing, the Belichick imitation party, or you let your real personality come out once you're under the thumb of the Patriots apparatus and you you're allowed to talk to the media. You're allowed to show some personality yeah. and share information and just be your own guy. And I think that's what if I'm hearing you correctly, Bert, I think that's what Josh McDaniels is going through right now. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of my experience there. I, I mean, I can tell you, like, I talked to the coordinators. I talked to the assistant GM. That'll be all be my story on Monday. And, like, you know, like, he was very much open, you know, like, and it wasn't, it didn't feel like New England. And I think that's a credit to Josh and maybe his own self-awareness, you know what I mean? Like, an understanding what went wrong in Denver, what's gone wrong for other guys that he's worked with. And I think they're really – Two things to, to, to hit on off of off of your point. I, number one, like I don't the way Bill coaches is sort of outdated, and and I'm not saying it doesn't work because I think it still does work. But I feel like you have to be yeah. grandfathered in, right? Like you have to be of that yeah. era. Like you have to be Nick Saban or Bill Belichick or an Urban Meyer when you know a few years ago when you've got all these skins on the wall. And so they have, people have to adhere to what you're doing because you've proven it. I think it's really hard to – I think it would be really hard to try to establish yourself as a 35, 40, 45-year-old first-time head coach doing things that way because the players you're getting just haven't come up that way, right? The players aren't right. getting coached that way when they're in high school and college anymore the way that maybe you and I were coached when we were kids, you know? So I think that's number one, and I think Josh is aware of that. And then number two, and this is like the most important thing I think you said – the one thing that I've found in common with all pro football players, all the guys I've covered, and some are smarter, some are dumber, some are from this background, some are from that background. <laughs> like, obviously, there's a lot of diversity. There's one thing they all have in common. They all have an incredible BS meter. And I, I'm not sure exactly why it is, but if you're full of it, those guys can sniff that out quickly. And if they think you're full of it, they think you're trying to be something you're not, you're done with them. And I think that that's something that's really important in these cases where – young coaches come out of a certain system that's very successful that they be themselves because if they're not being themselves, I think just, I think pro football players have a way of figuring that, that out very, very quickly. You know, the one thing now this, this all makes sense and I'm, I'm happy for Josh, you know, especially after not just Denver and how that thing fell apart pretty quickly. You know, he got off to, I think it was a six and O start his yeah. first year there. And then they fell apart down the stretch, won two of the last eight games. In the next year, uh, they had a spy, a junior Spygate scandal. And then, right. see you later. He was out. Then Indianapolis, accepting, you know, verbally agreeing to the job, 
and then saying, nah, not for me. I think like this is the right time. This is a, a, a good situation for him. I'm proud of him, but the one thing I, uh, I'm looking at and I'm a little confused by, and I wonder if he got into it. We had on that chart on the Raiders timeline. Great. Sign Derek Carr to the contract. Trade for Devontae Adams. Give him a big contract. Okay, God, we're, we're moving. We're good. We're good. Um, the team president situation, Mark Davis. Yeah. Hostile work environment. How's he, how's he navigate that situation? Because it seems like it's something that predated him. Yeah, and I, I think it's sort of, that's the way he's got to handle it. I, like the way the Raiders building set up, and this obviously can vary from team to team, but like the business side's sort of sovereign to the, to the football side. And I think over time, like Josh and Ziggler and those guys are going to try to bring that together. But I do think like, you know, early on here, there were a lot of things that were happening going back to July and August that were pre-existing when they came in the building. And so, you know, like the, the move to Vegas and then, you know, the way that things worked over the summer. And I think some of the things that happened between the former team president, Mark Bedane, and then Dan Ventrelli, who was the interim president, there was a lot of, I would say, loyalties on both sides there. And the way that last summer went led to that exodus. And then, you know, I think there were some loyalists to the old team president still in the building. And that's what sort of led to maybe Ventrelli winding up on the, on the outside looking in. Um, obviously, there's a lot to work through there. And... I just, I don't think the football people are that connected to it right now. I think eventually, you know, you want to have a harmonious building. And, you know, I, I would think that Josh and Dave would would want to be, a, you know, at least tangentially a part of, of helping to, to build that back up. Um, and they've got a way to, ways to go on that side of the building, no question. But I don't think the football people have been hit much by it quite yet. You know what? If I had seen you uh, before you made that trip to Vegas and looking at those pictures there, of Mark Davis. You can bring those pictures back up of Mark Davis because those are interesting. <laughs> if I had seen you before you went out there, I would have said, Bert, I'll give you $250 if you just go up to Mark and say, hey, where do you get your haircut? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really like it. I really like what you're doing here. I really you think that look good like, on me. It's you think that look good? It's fast. It'd be and like forward. a little bit of like uh yeah. <laughs> Like he's got it like like it's a little like a kind of like staggered there, so it's not a straight line, right? It's staggered. It's a little staggered up there. Yeah. It's a stagger. Is you know when they you know when they you know you know, you know, you know the, they got they got the scissors that are like that have like the little indents in them, right? Like so your hair isn't all the same right. size. So so like they're like I think they, they maybe use those scissors in the front there. Or maybe he owned maybe he yeah. did it himself. So what I do you think? To him. Do you think he has you know what, do? man? Yeah, I say you make me, you make me miss having hair. Like there, I, I've been okay with being bald, but seeing what you've done with your style here, I kind of miss having that option, Mark. You know, why don't you, yeah. why don't you let me Just know? Just kind of getting to get, get, getting to go whichever way you want to go that day. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. I, I guess. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you, 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 think, you, think that's, you think that's you think that's homemade, or do you think that he actually has that professionally done? No, I think somebody does it. I think somebody does it, and uh, I could. Oh, be there's wrong. like a little mullet thing. There's a little mullet thing going on there, right? Yeah. I think I it's think somebody. So. I think it's somebody who's afraid of him. I hope. Oh, I hope right. this is not true. I think it's somebody afraid of him. 
they get but if that done, person's afraid they, of him, then that that must be exactly what he asked for, right? right? That's what I'm saying. That's my point. That yeah, okay, they okay, give okay, him okay. what he's asking for, but they're afraid to say to him, you know what? Let's try something different. Hey, you know what? Right. Hey, Mark, just sit back. I'm going to try a little something different. See what you think of it. Because, you know, you might like it. But uh, in all seriousness, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll tell you, something else is different about the Raiders. And and you tell me just your sense of, I know it's May, it's early. Yeah. We can't really say who's going to be what when September comes around. Right. But I just think about the AFC. We, t- we spent so much time, Bert, talking about the AFC West. All right, you know, the Raiders, you know, making their aggressive moves. The Chiefs were aggressive, taking some chances. Tyreek Hill out of there. The Broncos, we'll talk with Ryan Harris uh, later. They were probably yep. the most aggressive team going after uh, Russell Wilson and that big deal. And then the Chargers. So everybody yep. I, I, I hear and everybody I read, they all say the same thing. Oh, the AFC West, oh, all these great teams. Everybody can't be great, though, can they? I mean, it's right. Some, and you, you can't have four, four of those teams are, are not going to be 11 and 6. Well, right, and if you think of like Buffalo and Cincinnati, if their road is a little easier to 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 get to the playoffs than what you're facing out of the AFC West, because remember, the West divisions also play each other, so it's not just those teams playing each other; they're playing against the Rams and the Niners and the Seahawks and the Cardinals, and so, like, you look at it and like they can't all be great, and like. Is it possible that they beat each other up to the point where maybe the division champion only has 11 or 12 wins? Well, that could have an effect on where the AFC title game is, right? Like, so if you're Buffalo or Cincinnati looking at this, there's certainly a possibility there that the fact that the AFC West has become so competitive means maybe the AFC title games at Paul Brown Stadium, maybe the AFC title games in Orchard Park. And so I think it's a great point, Mike, in that these teams, you know, all seem to be in this like similar aggressive posture where, you know, the Chiefs obviously have been in the Super Bowl two times in the last three years, AFC Championship game four years in a row. The Broncos felt like their roster was ready for a franchise quarterback, and they went and got that guy. The Chargers are in their window with a, um, with a young quarterback on a rookie contract in Justin Herbert. And then you got the, then, then you got the Raiders, who I think feel like they can build on what they had last year, which was a playoff team despite everything else that happened there. Um, and yeah, I think there's a, you look at it like well-coached teams, good quarterbacks in that division, they could beat each other up to the point where, you know, maybe all those teams are having to go on the road, um, you know, when they get to the divisional playoff or into the AFC title round. Bert, I, I know you got so much stuff uh, in your notebook and we're going to get to a lot of it uh, today. We're also, Bert Breer, going to take you back to your to the to the beginning stages of your of your career before you were a national NFL reporter you probably mm-hmm. had to cover high schools like we all did yep you had to cover soccer and basketball and I baseball. missed some stuff about that that was actually pretty fun so, looking back I mean so I, 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 I got, paycheck was very fun but I know it wasn't it wasn't but the kids yeah. were nice the kids are you yeah. asked them for an interview I never had a high school athlete say to me no comment no, oh, they right were now. excited to talk no. to you. Yeah, yeah. Never got shut down by a high school athlete. But we're going to allow you to exercise that muscle today, your, your general sports muscle, your football expertise, and also we'll talk some NBA playoffs too with Vinny Goodwill in about 20 minutes. But when we come back, I do want to ask you about something that I know it confuses you because I'm reading your feed. It confuses you 
and I'm floored by it. And maybe yeah. we can talk about it and figure it out together when we come back on Brother from Another. With Burt Breer making his debut. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, Burt Breer. All right, let's figure this out together, man. This is, uh, this is a situation. I, I can't recall anything like this uh, really in a long time in, in pro coaching. So we just talked about Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels, head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. And before that, longtime offensive coordinator, whether he had the title or not, but longtime offensive coordinator <laughs> with the New England Patriots in two different stints. Yeah. Like when Charlie Weiss left New England in 2000 after the 2004 season, McDaniels was his replacement, even though McDaniels didn't have the title in 2005, but he was a coordinator, right? And then he took that. He left Billy O'Brien takes over. Billy O'Brien was the offensive coordinator. Didn't have the title his first year, but he was offensive coordinator. Yeah. He leaves McDaniels now does have the title. O coordinator. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what the hell's going on in New England. Yeah, they've got I, Joe Judge. Mm-hmm. Joe Judge there. Joe Judge, the quarterback sneak from his own goal line. Joe Judge on two consecutive plays with the Giants, uh, late in his Giants career, his two-year Giants career. Joe Judge is going to be working with skill position players and quarterbacks. Right. Matt Patricia is going to be the offensive line coach, but some offensive input. And is it Nick Cayley? Is that his name, the tight ends coach? Yep, tight ends coach, yep. Who was actually, like, blocked from going to the Raiders by the Patriots, but now doesn't seem to have, has, like, an enhanced role, but I don't know that he's going to factor into the play calling. I mean, I think, like, we could get to week one. Like, could Bill be calling the plays? Like, I don't <laughs> think that's off the table. Whoa. Like, I, I just, this whole thing, I mean, like, and that's the thing. Like the most egregious Why? thing about all of this, Michael, the most egregious thing about happening? all of this yeah. is Mac Jones in year two. Like this is a critical year for him. And you look at all the offensive staff from last year, right? The guys who built the offense for him and built it up, Josh McDaniels is gone. Carmen Brasillo, the offensive line coach, is gone. Mick Lombardi, the receivers coach, is gone. Like they had all these guys that were there that were part of building the offense for Mac Jones and developing Mac Jones. And those guys are gone. And now you're bringing in a, a couple guys who, I mean, what's their experience coaching on offense? Like, Joe Judge has, like, a season where he was split between receivers coach and, um, and special teams coach. And then Matt Patricia was, like, a quality control guy who yeah. worked with Dante Scarnecchia, like, 15 years ago. So, I, like, how do you trust? Like, I, I just don't understand, like, why – Okay, like why you aren't bringing in somebody to work specifically with the quarterback? Even that's if, the question. Even if you want, even if you want these guys, even if you want Joe Judge and Matt Patricia to be part of the play calling equation, like still, why couldn't you find someone to work with Mac? Like that's my biggest question now. And you know, look, Bill will work with Mac. Joe's going to work with Mac. But 
that I mean like that's a complicated position to play and it still baffles me that like something didn't happen with Billy O'Brien because I actually think like Billy O'Brien would have wanted something to happen but obviously we are where we are now and there's just I mean a complete I, I think dearth of, okay. of quarterback coaching experience on the roster at a critical time for your young quarterback. Okay. All right. Now, 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 let me try to be fair. Let me try. Let me try. All right. So you tell me yeah. if this is plausible. So Bill Belichick, uh, you don't become a six-time Super Bowl champion, Bert, by doing things the way everybody else does them. So right. Bill Belichick was one of the first people uh, in the draft to say, you know what? I'm going to move back. I'm going to move back right. in the draft. I'm going to I'm going to get extra picks. You go ahead and move forward. Then everybody else started doing that. Bill Belichick was one of the first people to say, I think we have I, I want to have a dominant two tight end offense that he, he, he was trying to do that in the 1990s. He was trying to get right. Kyle. Remember Kyle Brady, Kyle Brady. from Penn State. Yep. He, he wanted to draft him 10th right? overall, which which would have been overdrafted. Yeah, yeah, he did. He wanted he wanted him. And when the Jets took him, he was pissed. So he's always been fascinated with, you know, two tight ends. Another thing uh, Bill Belichick did, one of the first people to do it, the, the prevalence of the slot receiver in today's game, yep. the Patriots were doing that before everybody else. It's Troy they, Brown. That was like a that was a tent pole of their offense. Troy Brown to Wes Welker, Wes Welker to Julian Edelman, that, that was their thing. So yep. he's always been kind of forward thinking in some ways. He's so far ahead, I can't figure this out. Is there any uh, is there any benefit to structuring a staff like this where there's you don't name an O coordinator or a D coordinator? We're focused on the offense, but they don't have a defensive coordinator either. I mean, so, and that's the thing is what I what do you think I he's guess, what, what's he as they say in England as they say in England, what's he playing at? What's he playing at? What's, I mean, what's he like, trying to do? So, so look like if you have a guy who's like say like it's just Matt Patricia, right? Like and you have Matt Patricia like being a, one of the guys that touches the quarterback, then I could see the logic in it, right? Like then I could say, okay, like he's trying to give Mac like some defensive perspective. He's trying to sort of help him understand what teams are throwing at him. That's fine, but it's like when you when the whole staff looks that way, you know, like when it's are we moving the tight ends coach over to help out? We're bringing the special teams coach back after he was a head coach somewhere else. Where we've got like our old defensive coordinator back after he was a head coach somewhere else. It's the totality of it, Michael. That like I just it's hard to wrap your head around. Like especially when you look at like the way they were able to get Matt going as a rookie last year and getting him playing at the level that he that he played at. A lot went into that and so now you want to build on that and how do you build on that well you build on that with some continuity around him and instead of you know maybe bringing back somebody who has background in the system to help the quarterback out you're bringing back guys that don't have experience on the offensive side of the ball at all and again it's like a big dice roll and I understand what you're saying but you respect Andy Reid right right did you know that yep. something like this undid, un, it undid Andy Reid in Philadelphia? So, uh, you know, and, and you wrote about this, right? Almost you identical. This is a, almost identical. The dream team. This. Like, yeah. It was a dream team. The dream right? team. The, the, so it was the dream the team dream in 2000. Team. Yeah, in 2011 when they brought in Namdi Asamoah 
And Vince Young was actually the one who actually said dream team, right? Which, like, he was the backup quarterback. But, like, yeah. So, like, what happened that year, they brought in Jim Washburn, who was, like, the highly respected defensive line coach from Tennessee. And, like, it was a big get for them. The only reason he was available was because Jeff Fisher had gotten fired there. So they go get Jim Washburn, a huge get for them. And because Jim Washburn's already there and has an idea of how he wants to do things, it becomes harder for them to find an off- a defensive coordinator. The defensive coordinator they fired was actually Sean McDermott, who then went to Caroline, and everybody knows where he is now. And so Wait a minute. Andy thought, Hold on a second. Wait a yeah. minute. They fired – going into that year, they fired McDermott? They fired McDermott, yeah. Why? They fired McDermott because, like, they had fallen off. Like, McDermott had been groomed to be the next D.C. after Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson retires, right. and McDermott takes the reins. And the defense had slipped a little bit. And so they wind up firing McDermott. They wow. fired McDermott coming out of 10. And then they bring in Jim Washburn as sort of the centerpiece of their new defensive staff. And, well, like, let's get creative then and do something different around Jim Washburn, who's going to be the crown jewel of our new defensive staff, because of everything he did for all those defensive linemen all the, all, like, through all those years, you know, in Tennessee. And... So they bring over their offensive line coach, Juan Castillo, who I feel bad for Juan because he was so well-respected. He was like the Scarnecchia of Philly, right? And they bring him over to be defensive coordinator. It was a disaster. He didn't have any background on huh. coaching on defense. The, I mean, like Namdi Asamoah was a mess, who was their big ticket, ticket defensive you know, addition. It, and it, it, wound up, like, it wound up eroding the trust that the organization had in Andy Reid, who had been there forever. He winds up firing him after 11, but by then, the questions about Andy's longevity, his job security in Philadelphia has, had already started. And you know the way it is. Once that ball starts rolling downhill, it's hard to stop it. And so I think it's very easy to make the argument that the decision to go and put your offensive line coach in as the defensive coordinator in Philadelphia was what did Andy Reid in. It's the reason why the Eagles wound up firing him after the 12 season. Well, okay, but okay, I guess there there are a lot of there's a, there's a lot to to pull from that from that story. One, uh, and you know this, but maybe a lot of people don't. Andy Reid and Bill Belichick are very close. Yep, they're very close. All right, I mean, so like one year they made a trade just because they wanted to keep the streak going the streak of, of making trades. Yeah. So they 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 just made a trade like a random nothing trade, like two boys, like hey, all right. I'll trade you like a seventh for a seventh, you know, just something, yeah. just something stupid. So they're very close. And I wonder, just hearing you describe this, I wonder if Andy Reid said something like, hey, it could work. But if I had to do it again, I would switch this. Or it could have worked if I hadn't done this one thing. I, I don't know. That, that's one. Um, but here's the other thing. It did turn out, if you look at it, yeah, it was a disaster at the time, the 2011 season for Philadelphia. It was no dream team. It wasn't. They were like, I think they were 8-8. Right. Eight eight. Yeah. In the old 16-game world, they were 8-8. Eight eight. But think about, Bert, I want, this is very serious. I want you to consider how things turned out for some other members of that team. Namdi Asamoah wound up marrying Kerry Washington. It worked out for him. <laughs> okay. Kerry Washington. He married Kerry yeah. Washington. Good. Yeah. Sean McDermott, the fired, deposed Sean McDermott. Now look at him. Uh, yep. Probably he's got the best roster in the league. Oh, right up yep. there, the Buffalo Bills. Yeah. It even worked out for Andy Reid. 
Went to Kansas City. Got fired. Yep. Went to Kansas City. Got a great, uh, got a great roster. Brett Veach. Brett Veach was there too. Brett Veach winds up being a general manager. Worked out for Howie Roseman. You know, he's still there. He's in control in Philadelphia. So, I think Doug Peterson. Think Doug thing- Peterson was on that staff. Doug Peterson gets fired. Goes with Andy to Kansas City to be his offensive coordinator. Then winds up coming See? back to Philly as the head coach and wins the Super Bowl. And Vince so I think Young what you're is telling the king me of, is, and, Vin, and Vince Young is the king of Austin, Texas now. Well, well, here's, here's this is what this is what you're telling me. This thing is yeah. going to implode on the New England Patriots, but the implosion is not going to be a deal breaker. You know, people will wind yeah. up in different places. It's going to be good. It's going to be good for their careers. I think that's what we're going to get. But do you think um, you think it's an ego, just like an ego trip for Bill Belichick that he's. Always, yeah, I, has he always seen himself as a play caller. Like, what, what's up with that? I think it's, I think it's, so like the biggest criticism I have of this is I think the decisions that Bill's made over the last six months have been so based on who's a flight risk and who isn't because he's sick of having to replace people. And so I think a big reason Elliot Wolf isn't in the number one chair in personnel right now, rather than Matt Groh is because Elliot Wolf interviewed for the Vikings job, the Bears job, and Bill's looking at it and saying, if I, do I have to replace Elliot Wolf in a year if I promote him? Billy O'Brien wow. may be the same thing. Come you know, on. Billy O'Brien, That's if I bring terrible. him back from Alabama, then do I have to replace him in a year because he's running off to, say, Michigan to be the head coach, right? Like, so I think that that is – I think that's a significant piece of why this has happened this way. Come on, let people be and great. I think that, let them be great. And I think that, and I think that's a hor- I think that's horrible logic. Like, look at the way, look at Sean McVay with the Rams. Right, they lose guys every year. There are guys who are only there for a year or two. He doesn't care because he knows, like, he's going to wind up. People are going to come through there, do a great job for them. That's right. If they get more opportunities, that means things are going great for me. And you know what? If other people see these guys getting great opportunities. Everyone else is going to want to work for me too, right? That's so now right. people are lining up. People are lining up to work in LA for the Rams, and I, I just think the logic of that—the logic of it has to be inside the family, and we can't teach anybody else how to do this. And if they don't come up from the grassroots level, then we're not going to have them here. I mean, I think Raheem Morris is a great example, right? So. When Sean brought in Brandon Staley, one of the main reasons he did that in 2020 was because he thought Vic Fangio's defense was the most difficult defense to play against in the NFL. It was the one that had given him the most trouble. So he brings in Brandon Staley. They had the number one defense in the NFL. Brandon Staley's gone after a year to the Chargers. So Sean goes and pulls on his connections, and he's great friends with Raheem Morris, and he brings Raheem Morris in. But instead of asking Raheem Morris to run the system that he'd run in the past, hey, to make it easier on the players, would you learn Vic Fangio's defense and kind of continue to build on some of the things that we built on before? I know you're a really good defensive coach. This is maybe a chance for you to build up some new muscles. And in the process, we'll be able to interject your ideas into what we're already doing. And look what happened. And now Raheem's probably going to be a head coach in a year, right? And I just think having that sort of system where you've got guys going through and achieving things and – People want to work there. We talked about that with, the thing, with, with, with Josh, right? Like where people know if I come here for a year or two, I could have great opportunities. And you know how you create those great opportunities? By benefiting Sean McVay, right? Like so yeah. I, I, I just, I mean like if, look, if, if it doesn't work, 
those guys are still going to be with you for the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? Like, those guys yeah. are still going to be with you because it's not working. And, and the thing is, you know, look, if it's Bill Belichick. It's Bill Belichick. You, you're going to have people, you still have players uh, who, who don't even know about your Giants days. People don't, who don't, some players don't even remember the early Patriots days who just look at you and say, I want to play for him. You got coaches who want to, who, who want to be led by him. You're going to have, you're not going to struggle to find people who want to kind of uh, sit at the feet of the genius right. and say, all right, I'll do it. And he should look forward to that. He's always going to have the, the top pick. Now, I'll, we'll, we'll get into this later because I, I want you to talk some basketball. But let yeah, I, I know you're excited to talk hoops after talking football all the time. Yeah. But uh, someone that we both know very well, uh, Mike Felger, always says in Boston, Boston uh, talk radio host, always says this is financially driven. Says the yeah. Patriots are doing this because they don't want to pay now, somebody that's else really bad. The they don't want to pay a big time offensive coordinator. So we'll talk about that stuff later. But Bert, we got to talk some ball conference finals. We got Celtics heat. We've got Mavericks shocking Mavericks Warriors. Billy Goodwill Yahoo Sports is going to join us after this. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Pat? probably is really going to enjoy this. This is like a throwback series. I mean, if, if both teams are really on top of their games, um, you know, this shouldn't be a, a series where either team is scoring 130 points. Um, both of us, both teams uh, hang their hats on uh, rock-solid team defense and making multiple efforts and being disciplined to schemes. and um, You know, so it'll be a lot of uh, plays and things in the margins. Uh, and that, that's what you expect. I mean, really, we're the two best teams in the East most of the season, um, and it's, it's fitting that we're, we're meeting in the conference finals. You look at a lack of rest or preparation or whatever, but I also look at um, consistency and, and kind of some momentum on our side. And, you know, we'll get out there and play, turn the page really quickly, just like we did after we lost game five. We had a, a night to get over it and figure out what we're going to do for a six and seven, and that's the same thing with this series. So. Uh, tough, hard-fought series just ended, but have to turn the page and focus on Miami now. And so, guys have mentioned that. I think there's a lot of familiarity between the groups, and uh, that should bode well for us. All right, that was uh, that was Eric Spolster, head coach of the Miami Heat, Ime Odoka, head coach of the Celtics, and Vinny Goodwill. Say hello to Burt Breer. Burt Breer filling in for Mike Smith today. And I got to tell you, um, uh, Pat Riley, you know, Spolstra mentions Riley. No, he kind of understated it. Like, yeah, Pat's going to mm-hmm. enjoy this. Benny, do you remember when Pat Riley sent out a press release? Uh, this is an actual press release on Miami Heat letterhead. He said, Danny Ainge needs to shut the F up. 
<laughs> okay, but he didn't say F. Okay, Danny Ainge needs to shut the F up. He was a whiner when he played, and he's a whiner now. So there is no lack of animosity uh, in this series. That aside, Vinny, uh, who, who do you, who do you got here in Miami, Boston? Doesn't it bring up such good memories? It feels like a warm blanket of rivalry of hate. You know what I mean? Like, this is the NBA that I kind of grew up loving, even though, you know, my teams and the Boston teams had, like, this blood feud for so many years. So I know you guys don't sit on the same side of things that I sit on. But for this series, you've got stubborn versus resilient. Now, you can take and apply each definition to each term to both teams because they fit. But I think Miami is going to come out on top here. I wonder if that Milwaukee series took so much out of the Boston Celtics that they don't have it, the emotional capital to rev up against the Miami team that plays like this all the time. And for me with the Miami Heat, it's a matter of, are they going to shut out Jason Tatum? You look at what they did with Joel Embiid. You look at what they did with James Harden, even though so much of what James Harden did was self-inflicted. You look at what they did with Trey Young. They go after the stars. If you're a star player, high volume scorer, they're going to send the dogs out after. It's on you to make the secondary plays, whether it's the Jalen Browns. I don't think Brent Williams is going to be getting 16 threes in a game again. I wonder if the experience of the Heat, along with them knowing, hey, this may be our one chance to get there with the group that we have, with the age of the players that we have. If you're Boston, you're feeling like you're at the beginning of something. I think there's a desperation with the Miami Heat that might sit in that does not quite exist with the Boston Celtics. Not that they can't afford to lose, but I wonder if Miami's just a little bit more desperate, a little bit more stubborn. And I think that wins this series. And that's a good point. I, I, I wonder, Vinny, uh, if you think Boston could do to Miami what it did to Milwaukee was just kind of frustrating Giannis. Certainly didn't shut down Giannis. He had a historic series, but field goal percentage dropped by about 10. Uh, Kevin Durant had his numbers in the, in the first round series, but the field goal percentage once again was down. Do you think Boston is able, and not that Miami is built like those teams, but you think Boston can go in and say, look, we're taking Jimmy Butler away from you. You know, you, you ain't gonna see the same Jimmy Butler. We ain't gonna lose to him. So we are going to focus our defensive efforts on Jimmy Butler and the rest of y'all better step up and be scores. You think Boston has the ability to do that? I think if you try to do that, you will play right into Miami's hands because Jimmy Butler is not the focal point of any level of offense the way that Giannis was, the way that Kevin Durant was. And there's no mental things going on with this team like it was with the Brooklyn Nets. They were just an incomplete fractured ball club and they're not missing a Chris Middleton like Milwaukee was in the second round. If Chris Middleton plays in that series, that series is over in six games. Let's not get hasty here and crown the Boston Celtics like the new age greatest defense of all time just because Milwaukee was missing their their best shot creator. Like let's not forget that. I don't know Boston was without a time lord and everything else, but shot creation is so very important. You got to see that in that second half of game seven where they were really, really missing Chris Middleton. Miami does not have those issues. They're not centered around one player. So, yeah, you can go ahead and focus on Jimmy Butler, and then Tyler Hero can go off and bite you. Or you can focus on Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo go off and bite you. They play to the point that, yeah, Jimmy Butler can get 30, but so many guys are 
built there to get you at least 15 under Gabe Vincent, and if Kyle Lowry can come back, they are built to be more evenly spread out and then allowing Jimmy Butler, who's being more of a jump shooter now than he's ever been during a regular season, more of a three-point shooter. You can't pack the paint on him maybe the way that you could on Giannis. Now, he's not the force that Giannis was, you know, inside the paint, but it's not going to be as easy of a strategy, I think, for Boston to play the same strategy on Miami. I think if you do that, you play right into Eric Spolster's hands. And Vinny, I would think like part of it too is like how replicable what Boston did in the Milwaukee series is, right? Like it felt like there were a couple of unicorn performances there, whether it was Al Horford earlier in the season, obviously, or in the series, obviously what Grant Williams did in game seven. I, I think that'd be part of the concern, right? Like is that you had a couple of games in there where you got bailed out by a certain player having a certain level of game that maybe he won't be able to replicate against the Heat. Not just that, but I, I think here's my theory on playoff series by and large. The best player in a playoff series can get you one game. He's responsible for getting you one game. Now, whether that's a game six or a closeout or whatever, but he's going to give you that. He's going to put you above that line. If that's Jason Tatum, you saw what Jason Tatum did in the game six where he scored 46. Can you count on that level of performance if Jimmy Butler is in his face for 45 minutes? That's my issue more so than Al Horford giving you 40 because in game seven, Al Horford or game six, Al Horford, Horford was just as important defensively and he scored two points. And he was like one of seven from the field and he grabbed nine rebounds and he had some assists. I wouldn't be worried about the scoring part if I were the Celtics. I'd be worried about can Jason Tatum replicate that one game in the series where we need him to be the best player on the floor for 48 minutes to lift like, you know, rising boat lifts all tides. If he's that type of guy, you're worried about him being able to replicate that type of thing. Because one thing I know for sure. Boston is not going to be able to just ISO him and Miami not make an adjustment. They're going to try to make Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart have a five three-point shot game or something like that. So I get your point about, you know, these unicorn games happening. I'd be more worried about them taking away what you do best, which is, which is Jason Tatum having the floor spread and everything. That's what I would be worried about if I was Boston. All right. Now, Vinny, you're out in San Francisco uh, for the Western Conference Finals. Mavericks, Warriors, uh, a lot of us saw the Warriors. A lot of us didn't see the Mavericks. Why are the Mavericks there? Well, this is where it gets interesting. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, There are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons. A team that won 64 games in the regular season, eight more than anybody else, more road wins than anybody else in the league. There's a lot of reasons they didn't show up in game seven. But it's a lot of fun, isn't it? To focus on their point guard. So once again, uh, Chris Paul doesn't get it done in game seven. So everybody from the person at the barbershop to the person on first take, I'm talking about you, Pat Bev, to uh, just a random person in the stands says, Chris Paul ain't, uh, he ain't got it. Chris Paul's not a winner. How do you assess the series and specifically like the, the, the moment for Chris Paul? Okay, I know it's real easy for me to take this victory lap, right? Because I told y'all, Albert, you weren't here. I told Michael Smith and I told Michael Holly that Chris Paul, as great as he is, has fatal flaws. One is him being hurt. 
the other is him not necessarily coming through in game seven because the way that you build a team around an 82 game season with the way that he plays is not necessarily the way that you can build a champion like he's a winner i think chris paul is one of the greatest winners when you look at his body of work he's not yet a champion and that's not to say anything against him, but when you build a team around everything that he does well, he controls the game as well as anyone. He does all these textbook point guard things. When you need a player to do more than 16 and 12, when you need a player to take more than 10 shots, taking 10 shots is real cute and real fun for the analytics people to say, you know, hey, sometimes you can take 10 shots and you can control the game as if you took 30. Sometimes you need to take 30 shots because your other guys don't have it. Sometimes you need to take control of the game, wrap your arms around it, even if you're not making 15 or 30 shots, but you need to have a, a level of force on the game of unpredictability on the game that by the time Chris Paul made his first shot the other night, they were down 38 points. The game was over. Ooh. You can't play the same game every game. And this is why Michael Holly, that I said that there is no, there is no discussion about Chris Paul and Isaiah. Isaiah Thomas, the original. See, there is magic, see, there is Isaiah, and see, then there's everybody else. That. Yes, yes, I'm going there, Michael Holly. You are right. Hey, I hey, am going there. Hey, Bird. What? <laughs> He's right. Hey, hey, it's what, hey, Bird, see, this is what it is. So we start off talking about, and, and Vinny, you don't know. I, I just got, I got a little, I, I, got a, uh, I got a ringer here. So Bird not only is a, a dope NFL reporter, you know what Bert went to school? Bert went to Ohio State, okay? He's an Ohio Ooh. State Buckeye. And Bert, Ooh. just so you know about Vinny, Ooh. Vinny's from Detroit. This isn't Michigan people. This is what, see what Michigan people do. It always comes back to Michigan and Detroit and the Pistons and all that. So that's that's what oh, he did. So, that. So, it feels so like there, it feels like there's an old axe being grind, grinded here, right? Like, I, Holly, you think Isaiah's overrated? Because I'm not on board with that. I don't, I don't think he's overrated. No, no, he's properly rated. He's properly rated. He's under. I, I, he's I underrated. He's underrated and underappreciated. How dare you? And Albert Breer, I won't even, I won't even, I won't even mention what happened two days after Thanksgiving last November. I won't even go there. We we won't even Finally. go what happened on that Saturday in Ann Arbor on that snowy, snowy day. We won't even mention what happened there. The revenge Finally. of Michigan. They got won't one. Even go. Finally, Bert, they got one. Give it one. to them. Yeah, a one. new world order, baby. NWO. We, we coming back and for our, it. Uh... now. When our, our our quarterback had the flu, it was snowing out. I mean, and I'm not I'm not one to make excuses. We'll just see what happens in November. Yeah, we'll see what, what happens. What in usually November. happens? Well, I mean, okay, you guys got then, then 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 what happened when you guys got to the national stage? Couldn't quite measure up, right? So your win over Ohio State that was their playoff game. Their win over Ohio State was their playoff game. Then they went up can, against Iowa. Can we go back to the lecture at? See, Can we go I mean, back to the Jim Harbaugh was making Jim Harbaugh. Can we go back to the lecture at hand? Can we go back to the lecture at hand? Jim Harbaugh was making all these comments about third base. Michigan didn't look so good when they got to third base. We we did not. We we <laughs> we, we did not look so good. We back to the lecture at hand. The reason that I place Isaiah and Magic above everybody else is because they give the game what the game needs. When you look at the stats, the stats can be very sterile and very empty. When you need a guy to go out and give you 40, when your other guys don't have it, you need to have a guy that can take the game and say, you know what, this is not usually in my character, but I'm going to give it 35 points. I'm going to give it 
40 points. That's Magic playing at center, you know, against the Philadelphia 76ers 42 or something years ago today. That's Isaiah Thomas in the form in game six, 1988, saying we've got to win a championship today. And then he sprains his ankle and still scores 43 points with six steals and eight assists. Those are the type of performances that your point guard needs to have in these situations, especially if he's small and this is a big man's game. So when you spin it forward to what Dallas is going to do against against Golden State in this series, who's going to be able to lift? Is that going to be Luka Doncic being the best player in this series? Or is that going to be Stephen Curry breaking a shooting slump that he's been in basically throughout this entire playoff, breaking through, getting open shots? Or is this going to be Luka Doncic doing what LeBron did in 2007, which is unexpectedly romping through the conference on his way to the NBA Finals in year four? I got one more question, Vinny, on the on the Suns, because I think they're in such an interesting spot, right? Like, because obviously Chris Paul's aging, and we'll see how much longer he makes it. DeAndre Ayton's up. Like, what do they do coming off of this? And do you think, in some ways, like, you know, I, I know you don't want to overreact because they won 64 games, right? But sometimes, like, it feels like a game like that, like an ending like that can be a referendum on a whole program. So how do you think the Suns come out of this now? I think when you when you zoom in all the way out, you're saying, man, we got Chris Paul and we went from a lottery team that had not a footprint on the, on the NBA landscape to going to the NBA Finals to then winning 64 games. And you say, man, we made more out of this than we ever could have, right? The back end of this is now you've got three more years of Chris Paul and you're hoping that he stays healthy and stays upright. The question, Albert, is, is this system sustainable? And by system, I mean, can you have Chris Paul dominating the structure of your offense and not having another shot creator, not having another focal point of your offense? Maybe that's the reason why DeAndre Ayton might be a little unhappy because he should be getting more touches. He should be being more of a focal point in the offensive end, but then that lessens what Chris Paul can do. And the question is, what is good for 82 games? Is that going to be good for 21 games in the postseason? And I do think that is a legit question because Albert, they didn't just have problems against Phoenix. They have problems against eight-seeded New Orleans and after the play-in tournament. So it's a lot of things that you have to reevaluate in the playoffs. I'm not one to overreact, but I am one to say, let's look at the sample size and see exactly where we're going with our goals. If they're trying to be a championship team, you've got Denver that's coming. You've got the Clippers that's coming. Maybe Golden State isn't going anywhere. Dallas looks like they're for real. You have to make some real changes about what you want to do just to keep pace. I'll tell you, here's my last one for you, Vinny. I'll give you magic over Chris Paul. I'll give you Isaiah Thomas over Chris Paul. And you know what? How about the coach of the Dallas Mavericks, Jason Kidd? Yeah. Uh, you, you might have to go Jason Kidd. He is. He did everything he could to bring it. He never won a championship with, uh, with the New Jersey Nets, but he did win one with the Mavericks. And this team kind of reminds me, this Mavericks team kind of reminds me of that one in that they were Dirk and a lot of good players, but Dirk was their superstar. This is Luka and a lot of good players. Are you going to be bold enough to pick the Mavericks over the Warriors in seven games? I am sitting in San Francisco right now. Do you, do you think I'm a fool? Like, no, absolutely not. No, no, no. I, I, will, I will say this. Dallas is giving me pause because I think their defense is really, really underrated. 
Like their defense is so good that it's making up for the fact that Luka Doncic isn't defending. Luka Doncic might be one of the worst defenders in the league, but he's playing on one of the better defensive units in the league. And you're right about Jason Kidd. The fact that he is coaching his behind up, the fact that we thought so many things, I don't mean we as in me, but we as in a basketball public thought so many things about Jason Kidd and his lack of coaching acumen that he is making everybody eat some crow right now because nobody would have expected that they go from Rick Carlisle to Jason Kidd and have a considerable upgrade. And not only how the players play, but how they're prepared, how much they win, their in-game strategy. You don't think of Jason Kidd in that way, but and maybe it's time that we start thinking of Jason Kidd a whole lot differently. I gave him some strong consideration on my coach of the year ballot, but I'm not that brave to pick Dallas quite yet because just because I think they're going to make Luca work a little bit more you can't really hide him on defense the way that you could with you know with Chris Paul you know not being necessarily someone who pressures the defense all Golden State has is a bunch of guys who run around and try to pressure the defense unless Draymond Green decides that he doesn't want to shoot at all and I think he knows he has to be aggressive here Draymond Green might be the key to Golden State getting out of the Western Conference Finals because let's be perfectly honest they did not play well against Memphis they just happened to be in a situation where experience beats stupid <laughs> all right Vinny Vinny Goodwill always bringing the smarts though man I appreciate you uh, I can't wait to see what happens in these conference finals, man. I, I think I love the final four that we have yeah. here. Two good yeah. series, I think. I think. We'll check them with you later, series. Man. See y'all, man. Appreciate y'all, man. All right. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. John Elway. Of course, John Elway. A quarterback would say this, that... Another Hall of Fame quarterback, Russell Wilson, is the piece needed for the Broncos to compete again. Yes, we'll give that a retweet. We'll give that a like. Uh, we will blare that in old school newspaper terms. 72 font print that the, the, the headline above the fold. Yes, put it in bold. Of course, Russell Wilson is what the Broncos need to compete again. That's the piece. But Ryan Harris, our guy, who knows all about the Broncos, pro football and college football. I'm going to ask you how significant is that piece? Because we all look at Russell Wilson coming to the Broncos and we say, hey, they're contenders. Is he enough to make them contenders right now in your eyes? Absolutely. And I was fortunate enough to catch a couple of plays of practice. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was supposed to. But fellas, the ring plays. And one of the things you notice with great <laughs> quarterbacks is they can make throws that are unavailable to the rest of the NFL. And one of the throws I saw him make was to Kendall Hinton, uh, a guy who was a former cornerback and then quarterback for a game and then back on the practice squad, but really did well. And what Russell Wilson did is on a quick slant to the seam from the right, Russell Wilson threw the ball about 10 feet high, right over the linebacker that was in his vision and under the safety. Well, Kendall Hinton went up and skied for the ball, caught it, and was already past the safety by the time he lands. Now, that may just be some quick pass to many, 
But a guy like Kendall Hinton, one, Russell Wilson's looking for you to be open. Two, he's going to give you a play that lets you be an athlete. And three, the confirmation when your feet hit the ground that you can succeed. And that's just one player in one play. And Russell Wilson's been cooking in OTAs and really pushing guys to show them what it takes to win. Yeah, and Ryan, I think that process is really interesting, right? Like Because I think the, part of the reason why the Broncos did this is because they do feel like they've got a roster that's in position to win right now. The same way the roster that you were a part of in 2012, like they felt the same way. Like they were, they were ready to win and you insert a franchise quarterback in there and it can kind of put you over the top. What was like the process of onboarding Peyton like? Because I think obviously you have some guys that were used to doing things a certain way. And then you have a quarterback who's so established, who's played in so many big games, who has the way he likes things, who's played in a certain type of offense for his whole career. Like, what does that process look like? And what do you think the other Broncos players are going through right now getting used to playing with Russell and maybe the coaches too? Well, the biggest part of the process is a quarterback that's willing, right? And I'll take you to 2011-12 season. I was in training camp when Peyton first came, and he was a different guy. He was getting guys cut. He was really firm on what he wanted guys to do. Fast forward to when I came back in 2015, you know, he was far more open to guys. He, he asked us, hey, what do you want to call this play? Hey, we're going against the Chargers again. What do you want to change the East Coast and West Coast? We said, uh, how about Biggie and Tupac? And he goes, well, you guys, you think guys will really know what that means? So, well, yeah, everyone but you, Peyton, <laughs> right? So Peyton was willing, not just with players in 2015, to, to involve them in the process, but also coaches. I mean, one of the greatest books that's out there to be written is how much Peyton Manning and Gary Kubiak just listened to each other, forced each other to change and listen to each other. And I bring that up because one of the things I love is Russell Wilson is already with coach Nathaniel Hackett at the Broncos said, he's a great teacher. He guys are learning, not guys are catching up, not guys are in meetings, guys are learning, right? So he's already starting to mesh with Nathaniel Hackett, also telling him what works, what doesn't work. And Nathaniel Hackett's always already talked about being open and willing to listen to his players on the field. Those are two rare things. So in a combination of a willing quarterback and a willing coach, now you get that quarterback to go to the field and he's got a mandate from the coach to create wins. And what that looks like is taking the 10 minutes before practice where offensive linemen are sitting and mulling around and turning that into a blitz period, getting guys out to Russell Wilson's house in the offseason to work. And one of the things Russell keeps saying is this, I keep showing these guys what it takes to win. And that's something that this Broncos young roster really hadn't learned in the past few years. All right, so let's say they figured out they're figuring it out. Let's say it that way, Ryan. They're figuring out what Russell Wilson already knows, and that is winning and how to put that into place, not just on game days, but during the week at the facility. And I, I mentioned this earlier uh, to Bert. The rest of the division, though, is a bear. I mean, you got the Raiders, you got the Chiefs, and you got the Chargers. Those are all good teams. Just... How, how could the Broncos separate themselves? I'm not even talking about the Chiefs yet because the Chiefs, I think, until you knock them off, I think it's four straight years of 12-plus wins. Until you knock them off, you got to give them their respect. But how do you separate yourself from the Raiders? How do you separate yourself from the Chargers? Well, there's going to be two big keys in this schedule for the Broncos. The first nine weeks, they only have two division opponents. That's big. you got to create some kind of schedule lead there. And then you wrap up December 4th on. I mean, you're facing a gauntlet. You've got 
the Chiefs twice, you've got the Ravens, and then you've got the Chargers, right? So they have to first separate in that first half of the season and then dominate in the second half. But that's the, another benefit of having Russell Wilson. We were down when, when I was with Peyton Manning, 14 points in the fourth quarter in Kansas City, and he gets in the huddle and calls two plays. And I'm thinking, oh, God, he thinks we can win this game. And we ended up winning it, right? Ben Roethlisberger was the same way when I played with him. Champions like Russell Wilson, high-quality quarterbacks that can make throws that aren't there, they're going to build belief in that first half of the season so that players later on when the gauntlet gets real, they know they have not only a chance to win, but to make the play to help the team win. And that kind of confidence, that kind of building, that's what they will be able to build around Russell Wilson. The only thing that's going to make a difference will be whether or not they're healthy. And you know what, like, Ryan, I think, like, what happened with Russell is sort of emblematic of, like, what we've seen across the NFL with all the transactions. And I think for years and years and years, we were all trained to think this won't work in football, right? Like, you can't turn over big pieces of your roster at a time. And now we're seeing contenders do it. Like, the Chargers, they bring in Khalil Mack and J.C. Jackson. Those guys are going to be major parts of their team. The Broncos, like we've been talking about, bring in Russell Wilson. Um, you see what happens with the Raiders. They bring in Devontae Adams and Chandler Jones. Cincinnati completely blows up their offensive line. Cleveland's got a new quarterback. Miami's bringing in Tyreek Hill. Um, and this is all exciting to talk about this time of year, right? Like, what's the AFC going to look like with all of these new guys in new place and these teams loading up? From a player's perspective, I, do you think any of this backfires? Like, this amount of movement, like, I, I mean, and not just good players. Sometimes the best players on teams going from one team to the next – what do you think that's going to look like, you know, when we get to September and October? And maybe do you think there are some more bumps for these teams coming based on the adjustment that maybe some of them are going to have to make? There absolutely are bumps and adjustments that have to be made. I mean, one, it's one thing to trade players and move them around. It's another thing to absorb egos. And that's really what you're talking about if you want to win in the NFL. You have to absorb a bunch of personalities. So that starts with leadership. But especially for players, strangely, the urgency in the NFL is even higher now than it was. I mean, you come from college, a place where typically most guys have been there for four years, right? Maybe learned a new offense at some point. And now in the first year, not only do you learn a new offense, everything's different, everything's faster, everything's bigger. And then year two, if you're lucky enough to get to year two, half your team is gone. But now even the stalwarts might be gone. So one of the things that does for players that I've talked to already this year is they all want to be healthy, they all want to make minimize mistakes. I mean, these are things that guys are talking about in the offseason that I haven't heard, whether I was in the NFL or now being a broadcaster. So the urgency has skyrocketed in the NFL because of all the moving pieces, big names and small names. How does that affect well, you psychologically as a player? Like, I'm just want, sorry, Michael, yeah. but I just like I'm interested. In no, that. Like, psychologically, yeah. how does that like how could that affect, you know, like some of these players? Well, it's, I mean, some players are going to lie to you and tell you, oh, it's just a game. You got to do what you got to do. And ultimately, that's where you have to live with your mindset. But it definitely creates fear. I mean, if you think about it, Tyreek Hill, you can't get a more dynamic player who does things that no one else in the NFL does. Next time you watch Tyreek Hill, watch how he snaps his hips upfield after he catches the ball. And you might be gone. And hopefully he wanted to go to Miami, but you don't always control that. Right. I mean, we saw Baltimore let some players go uh, and, and trade Hollywood Brown because they don't want to take hostages, as they say. So it's definitely more unsettling for players, especially mentally and older veterans who are saying, man, 
How can I believe or sign a deal someplace when I know that even if you're going to the Browns, for example, Baker Mayfield might be gone. Is Deshaun Watson going to get suspended? I mean, there's so many questions. It really forces players to focus on what they can control and bring their health and their best to their roster. You know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Baltimore. I want to bring up Baltimore because I can't wait to get your reaction about one of the acquisitions Baltimore got on draft day. I'm sitting there. I'm like, wait a minute. Do not let Kyle Hamilton wind up with the Baltimore Ravens at number 14. This is insane. So it always Kyle happens, Hamilton, Michael, too. Yeah, and they just they just know how to play it. A player like that always Hamilton. falls into the Ravens Ravens lap. Yeah, always, always. Somebody slides. Great player slides. We all say the player shouldn't be sliding, but nobody stops to slide until the Ravens do it. <laughs> you know, that's how they got their MVP quarterback. So. Uh, just a couple things. One, what was your reaction when you saw that happening, Ryan? And, and two, uh, what do you think about the fit of Hamilton with the Ravens? Well, my reaction was multiple teams, including the Vikings and the Lions, are stupid for not drafting Kyle Hamilton. And I get it. Maybe he didn't run a fast 40, but you know who else didn't? Chris Carter, Larry Fitzgerald, right? I mean, come on. You put on the film, and there's no one like Kyle Hamilton. And so I was amazed at how many teams passed on him because of a 40 time. But then you talk about the fit, Michael. My goodness. I mean, I've played the Ravens. They live in cover one. And that safety who's going to scrub away any mistakes, they call that the eraser position. That's where they live. You just gave Harbaugh carte blanche for the next four years to run every single blitz he can imagine and dream of. I mean, Kyle Hamilton has the speed to cover both seams if they're bringing a zero blitz. He has the coverage ability with the ball in the air to cover a deep route to let corners take chances underneath when there is some pressure that puts everybody else in man. Kyle Hamilton had a fantastic spot, and they'll be playing the Steelers twice a year. The Steelers' number one threat on offense, Notre Dame wide receiver Chase Claypool, and I promise you Kyle Hamilton gives no bones about giving his old teammates some tough love in that secondary. Yeah, I like. I think Kyle Hamilton's fascinating, guys. Like, I because I, I mean, I like one thing that you consistently heard about him is that you're going to have to be creative with him, and that maybe you can't leave him in one spot. And I, I know what you're talking about here is him playing post safety a little bit more, Ryan. But like, one thing that sort of came up was you're going to get the most out of him if you use him creatively. Sort of the same way the Chargers use Derwin James, where they move him around a lot. I think yes. that's a big part of it, right? Like going to Baltimore, not only are they going to play him in that role, you know, high, like you're talking about, but they're also going to be creative enough to use him in different ways. Well, and that's the biggest thing fans are missing about the game of football now. The game has changed in that quarterbacks understand coverage a lot more than they ever have. So what does that mean? A, a player like Kyle Hamilton can come down, press a guy on a, a receiver, and still play man as a corner. He can play a tight end at his 6'5 height. He can do many, many things that help your defense while confusing quarterbacks. So the biggest thing about using this free and post safety that's changed in today's game is it really changes the coverage read for pre-snap and post-snap for quarterbacks, and especially with the experience of Harbaugh and Baltimore, having Kyle Hamilton is going to make it a lot easier for them but that's something that a lot of defenses are going to. Can I get a safety that can also sometimes play corner, that can press man that tight end on the line of scrimmage to create? Is that a fourth linebacker, a third linebacker? Now the line's talking, the ball snapped, everyone's confused. So make no mistake, this is a big reaction 
to the quality of quarterback play that we see now in the NFL. Hey, hey Ryan, uh, is Notre Dame going to cover on, on Labor Day weekend in Columbus? <laughs> just just make sure you got little troughs for the tears that show up under there when Notre Dame comes out. I'm going to oh. tell you guys right now, you're getting ready to hear a name. Junior Kali Halamaka. They got a linebacker at Notre Dame, an early enrollee. You're going to learn his name, but Smith and Jigba, man, what a receiver. I tried to talk Al Golden already out of bringing a safety blitz because you cannot leave the back yeah. end open against Ohio State offensively. But what a kickoff game for college football and for two oh, yeah. great programs that produce fantastic players. They don't play enough. That's I know good. that. I, love play it. I mean, I love we, it. we win hey. every time, but. No. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But we, Ryan, we got to we got to bring you back right before that game and right after that game. Talk some college football, Notre Dame, Ohio State, and just talk about the season in general. I look forward to that. I'll have the face paint, the body paint. It's going to be awesome, <laughs> Michael. I can't wait. <laughs> right, thanks, Ryan. Ryan Harris, always a pleasure, man. You made us better. You made us smarter. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Is there such a thing as a traveler, not a Delta? Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Bert, I got to tell you, I love how obnoxious we've been today with the Ohio State thing. <laughs> you know, anytime we get an opportunity to take a shot. <laughs> that was an easy one, it. though. That was the, I the minute, I, I, the minute, I, the minute I, I saw the gold helmet behind Ryan, that was pretty easy. And, you know, it, it's funny because it's, it, it's almost put me in danger. I remember, and I was just having fun with it, but, you know, you got you to gotta know who to joke around with and when to joke yeah. around. Now, we all remember what happened when Ohio State played the U in a national yeah. championship game. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd say, you know, as an Ohio State fan, I'd say thank you. Thank you for that uh, very late, very, 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 very late pass interference right. call. Uh, as a matter of fact, Bert, it was so late. I remember <laughs> watching that play and saying, damn, we just lost a national championship. <laughs> yeah. I got up. I went to like, like get something to drink, and then I see a flag. I see flags on the field. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, well, cool. I'll take it. If so, but look, if you did your homework, like, yeah. like you should have before this, like, if you did your homework, you would see there was actually a missed call on the play before, where one of the Ohio State receivers got like dragged down in the end zone, and so I'm gonna give you your comeback now. Whenever anybody Makeup? brings that up to you. There was you're a there was a there was a, a missed call? call. There was a missed call the play before hey, that I think would have given us the ball on the one yard line. I won't take that though. I can't say <laughs> it's a missed call because because there are missed calls all the time in games. You always miss calls, but you yeah. can't look at a call. You can't blow one like if you're right on top of it and throw a flag when the flag shouldn't have been thrown. But that being said, I still I, I enjoyed it. I had a great time that night. They won a national championship, right? And so the Patriots, you know, a couple years later, uh, they draft one of the players from that game. That would be Vince Wilforth. 
Right. So Vince Wilfork and I was doing Boston radio at the time and one of our weekly guests mm -hmm. was Vince Wilfork and I yeah. may have mentioned and I, I may have mentioned it to him a couple of times. I tell you one time I thought he was going to like rip my head off. Like he was pissed. <laughs> he was like he, he had like he had like, a like, switch too. Yeah, he had oh. a switch where if you said the wrong thing to him like <laughs> it, yeah. it, it was it looked like he was ready to go. And he's a nice guy. He's a yep. really nice guy, but like he was just like I was like, okay, I will not bring this up anymore with Vince Wilfork uh, <laughs> national championship loss. But this is what I do want to know. I want to know from you. I saw this last week. I said, wow, that was really nice. What a nice comment from Peter King, our friend Peter King. He's Uncle Peter in our house. Uh, Peter yep. King wrote in Football Morning in America. He wrote that you, Burt Breer, really had an artful mock draft season and and that you uh, you nailed a couple and he was yeah he was praising you in his football morning in America column one what'd you think getting the props yeah, well, like that and uh, two what was your approach what would you, tell I, me your, your mock draft approach yeah well everybody who knows me knows I love Peter and I appreciate that coming from him it means a lot like he handed the torch to me with the column that I do now and I'm forever indebted to him and you know Michael I mean he is I, like he's as good a person as as, as anyone in our business. So That's thank right. you, Peter. I'll say I'll say it right here. Thank you, Peter. Um, you know, I I always like say like I approach my my mock with my ears, not my eyes. You know, and and I know some people try to go out there and say, well, this player should go in front of that player. For me, it's really about making phone calls. And you know, I I know a lot of people say, um, well, like you know, teams aren't going to tell you the truth. Well, part of the jobs of these teams is to figure out what the other teams are thinking and to figure out what the other teams are doing. And so a huge part of the information trade for me is being able to gather information. And what I love about that time of year is that for the coaches and the, the front office people who may help me during the season, who may help me, you know, in January and February, those guys now I've got something to give back to them, right? Like I can help them on the information trade. And so really it's about making a lot of, phone calls. It's about gathering intelligence on what certain teams might be thinking, what certain teams might be doing, and then being able to trade off that information. So you kind of get a picture for the way the whole league is thinking and you put together the mock and you know, you're going to mess some things up. I, I always say to people like one thing I don't want to have, I don't want to have a player three rounds too early. Like I don't want to have a fourth rounder in the first round. And so for me, it's important to try to get the players in the right ranges. You know, and then you, you hear things about, like, this team's interested in this guy, this team's interested in that guy. Like, for example, one thing I heard pretty strongly the week and a half leading up to the draft, the Panthers aren't going to take a quarterback at six. The only way they take a quarterback mm. in the first round is if they trade down. So it's going to be a tackle if one of the three tackles falls there. All three tackles wound up falling to them. So, you know, there's just stuff like that that you pick up along the way because the job of these teams isn't just to get ready for the draft. It's also to know what the other teams are doing. And a lot of times where I can build up my information isn't like some team telling me exactly what they're going to do. It doesn't work that way. They wouldn't do that. It's more so another team figuring out what that team's going to do, gathering information on that team, and then I'm able to access that information that way. You know, it's amazing. It, it really is. Um, you know, you talk about Peter King and, and how he, he, handed, uh, he handed the torch to you and you ran with it. We both used to work at the Boston Globe at different times, yeah. but we both uh, have uh, the Boston Globe on our resume, yep. and here it is. 
Here's, here it is from uh, Peter King. Congrats on your terrific mock, particularly the direct hits on Zion Johnson at 17 and, and Quay Walker at 22. That's some great picking. You never told me you had fortune-telling capabilities. Seriously, dude. <laughs> great job, writes Peter King. I like it. All right, so we both have the Boston Globe on our resume. And, right. you know, one of the pioneers when it comes to, you know, football commentary and football reporting yep. was Will McDonough. Right. So Will McDonough used to do a mock draft. And I remember saying to Bill Belichick one time, I said, man, can you believe that, you know, how accurate McDonough's mock draft is? He goes, yeah, it's easy. I said, really? <laughs> so he basically, I, uh, of course, of course, Bill Belichick would say, oh, it's easy. So Bill yeah. Belichick sits down and he enjoys it. He's like, oh, I'll tell you how it works. And he pretty much said what you just said. He said, look, this is what you do. All you got to do is you call the first team, you team with the first pick. All right, who are you going to take? And they tell you who they're going to take. I'm like, okay, that's very presumptuous. They're going to tell me who they're going to take. Hey, they tell you who they're going to take. Then you call the second team. And you say, if this guy's off the board, who are you going to take? They tell you. And you work your way down the line. And it you make some and way. you make some phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe for uh, you, Bill. Yeah. It's yeah. not it's not that easy for reporters just yeah. to call up a team, be like, hey, hey, it's Bert Breer. How you doing? I'll, who are you gonna take a number? I'll, three? T- I'll tell you what though, like Will McDonough, like who I mean was somebody I looked up to. Like that was part of like when I was a kid, I loved the draft, right? Like, and that was always oh, part of that Saturday morning because you remember you remember, like, and I, I sort of missed that, don't you? Like, where you'd sit down, it would start at, like, noon on Saturday, and it's probably, like, one of the first nice, sunny Saturdays out, right? And you're sitting inside the whole day, and you get all three, you get the first three rounds back to back to back right there on the first day. And, yeah, like, part of my routine every year was going down the driveway, getting the globe as early as it got there, and pulling out Willie's mock draft. He was incredible at hey. it. And, like... His oh, connections. Are, I mean, both of us know this were legendary. Yeah, and I, I love the draft too. This is a Bert, true story. This is how I knew my my girlfriend at the time was gonna be my wife. Okay. This is how I knew. So she, uh, my wife, has been dancing since uh, since she was like four or five years old, maybe even earlier. Right. You know, ballet, you know, like really, really uh, and still dances to this day, still dances. So she's like, hey, I want you to go to a dance show with me. Okay, fine. Alvin Ailey uh, uh, dance troupe. Great, the great yeah. historic Alvin Ailey dance company in Boston. All right. Uh, it's going it, you know, to be in about a month, month and a half, right? You're going to go? Uh, yeah. It was on draft day. <laughs> okay, it was on draft day. <laughs> so she's like, oh, yeah, don't forget uh, Alvin Ailey tomorrow. I'm like, oh God. Okay. All right. Uh, I said, I can't go in there. I can't look at my phone. I can't like, but I went, I went anyway. I went anyway. That's how much I loved her. I went to a dance show. The 2000 what year was draft. that? Do you remember 2006, 2006. That was Mario Williams, Reggie Bush, right? Yeah, 2000, Mario Williams, Reggie Bush, Patriots drafted Lawrence Maroney. I remember it. Uh, and the next year we got married. It was like, okay, we got to get married. We got to get married because we can't do this again. <laughs> I'll tell you what, like my <laughs> wife, my wife is so sick of the draft. 
because she's like, you're having the same phone call over and over and over again. And like she, like every year, she's like, like, there are a couple of names that stick for her where she starts talking about them because she thinks their names are funny. Like Iki Aquanu was the one this year. She was like, I, like Friday night before the draft, she comes over to me. She's like, or uh, Wednesday night before the draft starts on Thursday, obviously. She comes over to me. She goes, so where's Icky going to go? <laughs> like, you're asking me where. <laughs> like, I, I, I think there are probably football fans out there who don't know who Icky Aquanu is, right? Like, NFL fans who probably didn't really know who Icky Aquanu is until a couple months ago. Here's my wife coming up to me the night before the draft and asking me where he's going to go. All right. What did you tell her? You said, oh, yeah, I think I, t- I told her I might have said Jets. Actually, I think that's where I mocked him to. I think I mocked him to the Jets, I think. Or no, 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 no. Houston, Houston, which I should have. Oh, I, I, I should have had Stingley there. Like, and I, I just didn't have I, I knew they liked him. I didn't have the stomach to put him at three. I said, maybe they trade up and get him. But I have the stomach to put him at three. See, you know, and it's interesting because we we're having this conversation as media guys, and most of the time, athletes can't relate to it. But now, Bert, I, I got to get your take on this. We've got athletes who are coming over, who are coming over. And the most famous yep. one, Tom Brady. Brady getting a, a huge deal. Who knows? The numbers have been disputed, but we know it's a significant commitment from Fox to Tom Brady. Yeah. And as soon as he retires, he's going to be the number one guy. Uh, their number one analyst replacing Troy Aikman essentially. So Tom Brady analyst uh, Drew Brees left the analyst game. Well, I don't know if mm-hmm. he, Drew Brees and NBC probably going their separate ways and Sean Payton jumping into the studio and I, I look at this uh, and I think it's great. Like the money doesn't bother me at all. Like I, I, I'm always saying to people get as much money as you can. I don't care what industry yeah. you're in. If you're if you're well paid, I'm happy for you. I'm not gonna hate on it. I'm not gonna question it. Go ahead and get that money. I do wonder though, if and, and I'm not I'm not saying this because I love journalism so much and this is what I've always wanted to do. I, I wonder if the executives making the decisions and the players and coaches who are taking these jobs, I just wonder if they realize the art to it. Yeah, and and the work involved. I mean, it is a lot of work. There, there are people, and I, I and Bert, trust me, I've never wanted to be a play-by-play guy. That was never a dream of mine. Never. I always wanted to be a yeah. writer. Uh, never wanted to do play-by-play. Never wanted to do color commentary. So this is not me saying that should be me. But right. there are people who, even though they played at a high level, like Brady, coached at a high level, like yeah. Sean Payton, it takes. It takes a lot of study and it takes a lot of technique to get that thing right. And I wonder if they're all about it. Right. And it's, it takes a commitment. You're right. Like, and I, I mean, Michael, I think that there's an interesting discussion to be had here too about like what we really value, you know, and, and, guys who are in those positions. And you think about like some of the better color commentators, like over the years, like Kirk Herbstreet wasn't a great player, Mark Schlereth wound up being a really good commentator. He was a guard. And you wonder if guys like that are going to get those sorts of opportunities now, you know, like to be in that sort of elevated role, or is this all just about star power? I, <clears throat> sometimes the biggest stars aren't the best at this, you know? And, That's right. and I, 
My question with Brady is, is he's so image conscious? Does he measure every word to a degree where he won't let it rip in, in the sort of way that you need to let it rip, right? And can he be relatable enough? This is a really interesting thing. I, I got a common friend with Tony Romo who I've known forever. And we were talking about Brady, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I said to him, I'm like, you know, I think one of the things that's one of Romo's biggest strengths that people never talk about is just how normal he comes off. He looks like a normal guy. He talks like a normal guy. Like, you can envision yourself having a beer with him, and I think that there's real power to that, right? Can Brady come off that relatable? You know, like, I I don't know. And part of it, and and I thought it was an interesting point, this this conversation I was having, this guy came back to me. He said, yeah, you know, Tony's still that guy from Burlington, Wisconsin. He still goes on a trip, on a vacation, every summer with his high school friends. Like, he works at being relatable because – like, he still kind of is true to his roots. And I just, I sort of wonder if somebody like Brady, who's been living a completely different life than anybody, like like anybody but the 1% of the 1% forever and ever, can have that sort of quality in the booth. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, but you know what? He, he probably, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm going to say he can't. <laughs> yeah. he, he, does it, he does it on social media. But right. then you got a social media team. So that could be your team just kind of scripting things out for you and saying, hey, do this, and I think it'll come off very well. But I'm not sure that's what's required to be good at the job. So Romo is that, I agree with you. Tony Tony Romo is relatable. Was Aikman, is Aikman? Nah, Mm. I wouldn't say that. Probably not. Troy Aikman, he is like, he is very good though. There's substance to what he's bringing. He is like, it's, there's some meat. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of fluff to Troy Aikman. Whereas Romo can 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 do both. He can give you the he can give you the silly stuff, and he can you know get into his little play calling bag and do that. And Chris Collinsworth is a good example of what you talked about, where he's probably in between, say Schlereth, and somebody like Romo or or or, or Aikman. Right? He played right. in Super Bowls. But he wasn't the reason, the number one reason this team got to Super Bowls. Right. He he played on Pro Bowl team. He was on, he was a Pro Bowler, but not like see, he didn't make seven of them. So, but I think what stood out, what stood out to me about Collinsworth, and this long before he got to NBC, uh, in the role he's in now, mm-hmm. Collinsworth one was fearless. He had a lot of enemies, but he'd be right. like, hey, that's not good. This guy sucks. Yeah. Or you know what? He should have had that. You got to you got to catch that ball or you got to make that block. And uh, so he's got credibility. He's he was uh, a borderline star player, but he had the grind too. He really worked at well being a good broadcaster. And I think like your point there about grinding is important because I think there's a psychology to this too, where it's like, you know, when I was in NFL Network, I can remember like there like there were players, there were ex-players that worked their asses off, but they felt like there was this glass ceiling and that you needed to have a yellow jacket to be on the Sunday show, right? Like they called them the yellow mm-hmm. jackets. Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, Deion Sanders, Warren Sapp, like the guys that were on the big show on Sunday were all Hall of Famers, right? I just wonder now where we're not making some of the Hall of Famers go through the process. Like even Troy Aikman had to go through a little bit of a process, right? If you just place somebody in that role – are they going to do the work? Like Collinsworth had to do the work to get That's there. Right. Like if he doesn't yep. do the work, 
like he's getting thrown out on a rail and the network that employs him isn't thinking twice about it, right? Like, whereas now you're bringing in guys fresh off the field because, and, and mostly because it worked with Romo and thinking to yourself, okay, like, well, we'll just put him in the number one chair and because he's a great player and because he's smart, he'll figure it out. He didn't have to work his way up. So he didn't learn what it took that way, you know? And I think like Witten is a good example of where it didn't work at all. Ooh, and I think anybody man. who was around Jason would tell you like, He's smart. He's like a, he's a good guy. He was a really good player. It just didn't work. And maybe part of it and was. And I think that's the norm. The, right. That's right, the norm. Right. That's the norm, Bert. That you, yeah. you, you throw a guy like his first assignment was like Monday Night Football. Excuse me. You, okay. Yeah. So you think you, you we talk about Monday Night Football and it's it's an iconic franchise and you want to talk about Howard Cosell and and Don Meredith and Gifford and all those guys, you think they just, it just happened for them? They just, you threw them into a booth and it was magic? No, you can't say the franchise is iconic and then think you can just grab somebody who's never done it before and expect them to be great. It, you should expect the struggle. So to, to, to bring it back for Tom Brady, do I think he'll be good at it? Eventually. Yeah. Will he be good in year one? Likely not. Just I like, mean, they, I, just I can... like, just like Drew Brees wasn't good in year one. It shouldn't be. Nobody should be shocked by that. It's it's an upset if they're good in year one. If they're great in year one, that's 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 the surprise. I mean, there's a reason why most TV people have to start in Des Moines, right? Because you can make your you can make your mistakes in Des Moines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can kind of stub your toe a bunch and learn from it, and it won't affect you later on. Like, this isn't Des Moines. Like, like, the equivalent of that is being on, like, the team that's broadcasting, you know, Jets, Dolphins in December, right? Like, and then you work your way up from there. Like, Kevin Burkhart. Like, that's the way he worked his way up, right? Like, worked yep. on Mets broadcast, worked his way up through the NFL system, and eventually worked he became a, the number you know, one guy. Right? Worked like, on the thrust fan the guy, for a while. Yeah. Right. You thrust a guy into that number one role right away. And it doesn't look exactly the way it looks. It magnifies everything. And that's why I think a lot of times the guys that aren't ready for it, that get pushed into these roles, you push them into that role. And then it's like, it feels like they're falling off of a cliff. And they're like, I don't want to do this at all anymore. So they don't go back and go on to the number three team. They just get out of it all together. I mean, Kirk Herbstreit's a good example. I brought that up before. I can remember seeing his first college football broadcast. He was doing sidelines at a Hawaii game. Wow. Yeah. Well, so to bring it full circle. Brady ain't, Brady ain't, go, Brady, Brady ain't going to Hawaii for work, huh? Yeah. Well, listen, Bert, of course Kirk Herbstreet is good at it. Where'd he go? <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Hey, I, I do want to get something. Uh, we had a little fun with that, but I want to I get your take on uh, what is uh, the most serious topic, off-season topic in the NFL, and it's yep. been a serious topic for a year now. I want to get your take on that and come back to the show. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Hey, uh, Burt Breer, about, about 
10 minutes left in the show. I got to get your take. I'd be remiss if I didn't get your insight on this topic. Deshaun Watson. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Browns went all in on Deshaun Watson. Not only traded capital for him, but spent a lot of capital fully guaranteeing his contract. And I wonder, Bert, if they did this for a player who may be suspended very soon, if not in the 2022 season, could be 2023. What do you think is going on with Watson and by extension? Because if something's happening with Watson, corresponding move for from a football standpoint is Baker Mayfield. What do you think is right. going on here? Well, I don't think that they're completely related. Like, I think if the Browns had a suitor for Baker Mayfield, they would trade him now and go forward with the possibility that Jacoby Brissett has to play games for them. They filled out their quarterback depth chart now with both Brissett and Josh Dobbs behind Deshaun Watson as if Baker Mayfield's not going to be in the roster. So I think that that's sort of separate. That's going to be more about how much money they're willing to eat um, and whether or not they can find a suitor and, you know, what happens a couple other places in the league over the next few weeks with how quarterback situations shake out. Um, I, I think that the Deshaun Watson suspension situation feels like the very least it should come to a head over the next six weeks or so. Um, the NFL is in Texas this week to meet with Deshaun Watson. Generally, the way these investigations go, that's the last piece of it when you're talking to the player. And that means that they've probably talked to as many of the 22 women that are accusing him um, as would, would be willing to talk. And they're wrapping up their investigation. That does not mean there's going to be a ruling, though. Um, it's possible the league decides that they're going to preempt the legal process. What's happened more often than not over the last few years, because the NFL did get themselves in trouble preempting the legal process a few times in the past. Over the last five years or so, the NFL has at least preferred to wait for full legal resolution. And what you want to pay attention to here in the calendar is July 1st. There's been an agreement in the courtroom now that if there isn't a resolution on the 22 cases on July 1st, they'll essentially press pause on the case until after the season. And if we get to that point, then the NFL has got to make the decision, do we suspend him now, not knowing what the future is going to hold when it comes to the rest of the the legal situation, um, and go forward making sure that we take him off the field at the beginning of the year, or do we wait until there's full legal resolution and maybe make this decision in 2023? I think it's unpredictable because of the scope of the case. Like, I think if this was a less high-profile case, less serious charges, the NFL would probably wait until 2023 to do something. I think because of the profile of the case, it could go either way. And, you know, you you wrote something interesting. Um, You said the NFL no longer wants to be in the business of being judge, jury, and executioner on these cases. Do you think that's the right approach? Because I know a, a lot of us were critical of the NFL for you know, looking at these situations and kind of judging the seriousness. And this is where they fall into trouble. Yeah. You know, you'd have a domestic violence situation and it was almost like, okay, that's two games. Uh, right. Somebody is smoking weed. Uh, okay, that's six games. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Are yeah. you saying that smoking weed is worse than domestic? Like, so do you think it's good that the NFL is kind of stepping away, even though that could be perceived as indifference or an endorsement. Yeah, I mean, I think like what you're getting at here is kind of this feeling that they're taking a handful of grass, throwing it up in the air and just waiting to see which way the wind blows it before making a final decision. And 
I, you know, I think you're referencing the Ray Rice case there where the initial ruling was a two-game suspension, which I, I think from a human standpoint, like that was a weird thing to digest. When you look at the suspensions for steroids, like you said, marijuana, other things that, right. I mean, from a, again, from a human perspective, aren't nearly as serious as, as what Ray Rice was involved in. And, and, just, and, and, so, and just let me just, yeah. and let me just, uh, just interject, and then I'm going to give it right back to you. It was almost as if that it, they, it was bad enough to go two games, right? As you just said, right. Bert. But what made it worse is when Roger Goodell said, yeah, well, you know, I talked to, I talked to Janae Rice. So it's yeah. like, and, and all these advocates are saying, no, don't do that. I mean, that's textbook where a lot of times uh, a spouse or a partner will accuse, rightfully so, their partner right. of this violence and then start doing this calculus of, well, wait a minute, if if right. they're punished, then that affects my bottom line. If they're punished, then they'll come back. That might put me in more danger. So I'm gonna I'm gonna smooth this over, or in some cases retract it. So there were so many errors with the whole process that the NFL had. Right, and and I think that this is a tricky one too because there's no criminal charges and. The evidence wasn't sufficient for two grand juries in Texas to go forward with the charges. And so, like, that's the one piece of information we have from the courts right now. Then you get the 22 lawsuits that are sort of sitting out there in the ether, and we don't have resolution on any of those. So does the NFL feel like Deshaun Watson's done enough to bring bad light on the league to where we say, okay, we're going to suspend you for being irresponsible. We know at least that, that you weren't responsible your social media, you cast the league in a bad light. Well, that's what they used to do. Like they did that with Ben Roethlisberger in 2010. Um, they've done that with some other players. Um, I, I really think that that, you know, that that year when we had the situations with Ray Rice, with Greg Hardy, and with Adrian Peterson, that was a turning point for how the league was handling discipline in these sorts of situations. And then, of course, the Ezekiel Elliott situation was a couple of years after that. And that was when Jerry Jones really got involved and said, we don't need to be in the business of being judge, jury, and executioner over cases like this. We should let the legal process take the lead. There are authorities who are more qualified to handle these situations than we are. And maybe, yeah, we, cut, we, we, we punish players, but we should not be doing it before the legal system runs its course. And so in this case, the criminal process has run its course, which is why the NFL feels comfortable now talking to the women and talking to Deshaun. They didn't want to interfere with the criminal investigation. Now the question becomes whether or not they feel comfortable with the information they have where they would preempt the civil process. And that's why I think it's sort of complicated. And again, I, I think it'd be naive to think that the profile of this case, the profile of the player involved, Everything that kind of goes with that isn't a factor in the way they're, they're looking at this and um, the way that they'll handle the next five or six weeks. Yeah, it's going to be tough, man. It's really going uh, to be tough just to see, you know, who the Cleveland Browns are in 2022. Yeah. Just to look at it from an on-field perspective. I, I see people doing this now. Hey, the, you know, Browns are going to be the best team in their division. Like, well, I don't know. Right. Tell me I mean, Deshaun hasn't played football. Deshaun hasn't played yeah, football in right. 18 months. I mean, that's got to be a and factor, that too. too, right? That, too. I mean, I, I've heard Chris Sims say this, and uh, he is pretty definitive with it. He says if, if Watson, if he has to miss another year of football, 
He said, when you see Deshaun Watson again, he's not going to look like a $50 million player. He's not, he's just not going to. He's not going to be a top five quarterback. Yeah. After missing so much time. Eventually, he'll get back there, but you can't just. Well, you hear quarterbacks. You hear quarterbacks say that all the time about the rhythm. There's a rhythm of playing football, there's a rhythm to the year. There's like, you know, uh, like an adjustment and then a comfort level you have with the speed with which everything moves out there. So, yeah. I mean, I like I don't know if we should expect the same Deshaun Watson we saw at the end of the 2020 season, at the beginning of the 2022 season, if he's out there. And it's just there's a lot going on with that. You know what I mean? And for that reason, it's going to be fascinating seeing how they handle training camp for that matter. You know, and if there yeah, is suspension, right. how they build their team during training camp. Uh, I feel like we're a little closer to getting answers, although that's not clear to us right now. We'll see. Man. Hey, hey, Fred it's time to go, man. Great job. I know. Awesome time job. Flew. Yeah. We we didn't we talked about the Buckeyes, but we didn't go in depth. So, so you gotta come back so we can talk about quarterback you, the new quarterback you. That's us. right. Dylan Rayola. That's right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.